welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. All right, welcome to another <laughs> welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, great to have uh, Jeff Newman in the house today. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Howdy, howdy. So I, uh, I've been I've been trying to get. Uh, more artistic voices onto the podcast, and I've been I've had uh, the opportunity to interview a lot of interesting folks, and uh, and and Jeff will be no exception. Uh, a lot of folks out there will know who he is, and there'll probably be other folks out there that have no clue. Uh, it really just depends, um, sort of, uh, what uh, what forums you happen to be in, and what uh, context you happen to, you know get your disseminated information about the field from. Um, I've been spending a lot of time over the last couple of years, uh, as many have, um, reevaluating uh, my own biases on a lot of different levels. Uh, the uh, George Floyd murder uh, in 2020 uh, was, a, was definitely a wake-up call for uh, the, the, the problems of, of, of racism in our world. But it was also a wake-up call for a, a lot of other isms, um, uh, and uh, one in particular that that uh, we in our field have been referring to a lot, ableism, um, has been a term that's been thrown around quite a bit, sometimes used maybe in a, in a bit of a weaponized way, other times used appropriately, you know, and, and hard to say, but th- th- that may be a, a, an area we get into today, we'll see. But that's in terms yeah i don't of those know if i agree with weaponized but <laughs> yeah no fair enough. it's just just phrases that i've heard on online oh, yeah. is, is all i'm saying I guess. oh yeah if we're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, online then of, you know you folks know me yeah, as the that, guy that's that. absolutely trying to destroy aba and doesn't yeah, care exactly. about uh real autistic people that really need services and certainly yeah. does no yeah. work in yeah. that field whatsoever um no, no, you're, you're fact, ignorant, it, Jeff. You're in ignorant. fact, depending on how far you go down the conspiracy rabbit hole, I don't exist. Um, I am simply a sock puppet <laughs> account. Uh, we've gotten really good using it where now we can get this That's consistent right. voice on. But I'm I'm not actually a real yeah. person. Um, Je- Jeff is a bot. <laughs> and, uh, controlled by AI. Um through uh, 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 some select uh, uh, high-level uh, systems within uh, the well, we're just a bunch of cos- <laughs> cosplaying autistic people um, that that are all doing this as a group, and we're pretty tech savvy. Yeah. So we've got this we've got this nailed where I actually sometimes sound and act like I'm an actual person, like right now. Um, yeah, yeah, you're doing. Well I'm doing today. great. Good job. Uh, yeah. Jeff, Jeff is Jeff is is is, is uh, Jeff's Jeff's uh, bot uh, program is also uh, quite skillful at masking, and he's doing a great job today of of, uh, of coming out sounding like a like a like a good old neurotypical man. Um, <laughs> that, that all being said, uh, there was there was a few a few uh, autistic voices that you know I think you know really had the courage to kind of speak out among among a crowd of primarily neurotypical behavior analysts um 
or at least folks that maybe weren't aware of their own neurodiversity, um, um, and, uh, and and say some things that need saying. And uh, some of the some of the names you'll 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 be, you'll be familiar with. Um, uh, I recently had uh, Tara Vance on the podcast, and uh, uh, if all goes well, her episode will be released first, so that reference point will make sense. And uh, another another big name in there, and uh, Jeff Jeff is definitely. Um, uh, a well-known speaker in those areas and i've been following his work for a lot for the last couple of years watch a lot of panels that he's been on um, engage in some discussions with him and it's been a really great learning curve for me as well to learn about sort of um, some different uh, perspectives uh, from uh, autistic voices but jeff is not just a, an autistic guy with an autistic perspective um jeff uh, jeff is actually in the field um but i'll, I'll let I'll, I'll let jeff tell you a little more about that so maybe we can start jeff by just sort of telling us sort of um uh what you do for a living um you know kind of and kind of kind of how you got there and how you got to be well you know a, an advocate for autistic voices uh yeah thanks ben um so, you know, you mentioned that I work in the field, um, and I do want to clarify that we, we, we need to clarify what field we're, we're talking about there. Um, I do mm-hmm. not hold an ABA credential. Um, I don't mm-hmm. have a whole lot of desire to ever hold an ABA credential for uh, a, mm-hmm. a lot of different reasons, um, but sure. I absolutely work in the field of providing disability services. Um, I am on senior leadership of, uh, call it a medium-sized nonprofit that provides home and community-based services um, to people with all kinds of disabilities, but the focus is on intellectual and developmental disability, and that is the primary area of where I work. Um, Our organization does provide uh, different support and services to um, you know, all kinds of folks from, you know, 12 to 18 months, uh, all the way to, you know, 80, 90 years old, end of life. We do certain things throughout a full spectrum of ages. Um, but, uh, most of that is, uh, the majority of support we provide is to people with IDD, um, that are adults, um, giving people the, support they need to live, work, and play in their community on their own terms. Um, Our organization, at the moment, we have in the past, but right now we don't operate an ABA program, um, but we are 100% licensed and cleared to do so. We have Medicaid approval. um, So if we wanted to get back into that, which uh, may shock some of the people that have a certain vision, um, I am... I'm actually advocating that we do that sooner rather than later of rebuild that program Mm -hmm. and um, get a BCBA in there so we can provide that as well. Um, But we do work with local providers, uh, and, you know, basically it boils down to um, if I'm respecting the autonomy of the adults I work with, and I absolutely do, that is one of the most important things, my personal feelings of whether or not they should choose themselves making an informed decision to access ABA, that is not my call, and it would not be fair for us not to support them. Um, So we do. Hmm. Um, Unfortunately, uh, it would be nice if 
the people choosing to access ABA providers could access providers that weren't um, terrible, but which mm -hmm. is which is driving a lot of the push to uh, get back into that world ourselves. Um, so my formal title is Director of Community Integration. Um, that involves just a whole bunch of different hats. Um, I am responsible for all of the training that our staff gets um, and putting together a good training program that hits, lets them hit the ground running with um, the knowledge that they need to have to be uh, to to do right by the people that are hiring us for services. Um, another hat is I am the primary investigator of abuse against people with intellectual and developmental disabilities for um, a rather large area of, I live in Colorado and work in Colorado, um, hmm. and the chunk of the state that I'm responsible for is, you know, it's, it's large, Connecticut, Delaware, um, about that, that size of a chunk. Um, about 100 mm -hmm. miles tall and uh, about 250 miles wide. Um, you know, and I do a whole bunch of um, advocacy and leadership training and a whole bunch of facilitation for um, people to work on their own advocacy projects, uh, whatever they're passionate about. Um, Along with along with about twenty other hats, but that's kind of the big gist of it. Um, and you asked me how I got into advocacy. Um, well, mm -hmm. you know that's um, it, it's been a long journey. I've got at this point, it's been about twenty years that I've been actively working as a disabled advocate slash activist slash whatever you want to call me. Um, you know, a Hulk, Adfly, those are fair too. Um, <laughs> but you know, it. Um, I had the experience that a whole bunch of disabled people have had of really getting drafted in um, without making a conscious choice to do so. Um, hmm. You know, I was diag. I, I want to make clear because this always gets muddled up of this myth of hmm. the, you know, autistic person that gets diagnosed in adulthood and therefore mm -hmm. that diagnosis must be suspect because if they really had autism, they would be diagnosed earlier. Um, and almost mm -hmm. all of us that fit that role um, were diagnosed earlier with a whole bunch of stuff. And I was diagnosed earlier. Uh, I was diagnosed autistic at age 24 but mm -hmm. um, I was, I had an IEP um, the entire way from kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, I was, I was in resource rooms. I was a special ed student um, and I got the special ed experience of most people I interacted with just not thinking I'd ever amount to anything. Um, good times. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. with, with the age that I grew up, I, I know I'm getting tangential, but uh, I was the very first generation in the early 1980s in America of main disabled kids being mainstreamed in classrooms, which meant wow. um, at least one out, like one out of three teachers actively let me know that they 
didn't like me, maybe hated me, and definitely did not want them in, in their classroom because mm. to be to be reasonably fair to them, um, they had been told without any training or education about how to educate a disabled person. They just got told one year, disabled people are going to be in your classroom and you have a responsibility to educate. And quite a lot of them did not think that was fair, did not think we belonged, thought we would take... Uh, would hurt the educational prospects of the students that were actually going to amount to something. And so it wasn't a good time. Um, but, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about diagnosis, right? Um, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, through school, my diagnoses, um, two years old, I was diagnosed with, um, you know, went to University of Colorado. My parents dragged me there thinking I was possibly deaf because I wasn't always responding to them. We don't, we don't know what that means, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, came out of that with uh, diagnoses of, at the time, called sensory integration dysfunction. And um, mm. they were also barking up the tree of childhood schizophrenia. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, now it... it shook me until maybe six, seven years ago to actually understand that in 1982, that was the diagnostic dumping ground for autistic people um, that did not meet the very narrow diagnostic criteria for autism back in the day. Um, for a long, long time, it just really pissed me off because I knew that I wasn't experiencing like delusions and I understood the questions to be confident that when people are asking me if I had delusions, I wasn't saying yes. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was really ticked <laughs> off to see that. And then I, you know, having a reckoning years later, coming to understand that that, that went into my chart because people are seeing me for who I was. Um, but anyways, that only coalesced together um, 24 years of age. So I went the first quarter century of my life, not knowing who I was, um, not feeling like, Anything I was going through, I could connect with anybody I'd ever met or heard about. Um, you know, it, it mm -hmm. was incredibly isolating. And so that and my really poor treatment, um, both at school and at home, um, most people with disabilities face abuse. I'm certainly representative mm -hmm. of that statistic. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was in a mental health crisis at 24. I didn't want to die, but I had no roadmap for any way that I could ever believe I'd have a more positive life. So it's kind of like I'm stuck. Mm. You know, I've given a quarter century into this. It's not working out. I, I need to see some, some, I, I have to have, have some hope. Um, and amazingly out of that uh, is when I, you know, luckily managed to get in front of the right people that identified, hey, you know, what you're telling about your life story really sounds and you know your presentation, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, really sounds like um, like you may have autism. And I of course laughed at that and totally rejected it because I've seen Rain Man. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, but then I actually started looking into it, and um, like once I finally found uh, stuff that autistic people had actually written, it was like, oh my God, here's this is my life story. Finally, I'm actually hearing something mm. that resonates with how my brain works. Um, mm -hmm. So it was one of the most positive experiences of my life. Um, 
you know, it's knowing who you are and finally finding um, both that there's your brain is wired in a way that um, other other people like knowing you have a community is huge. Um, but how do I find that community? It's 2004. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of what's out there today just wasn't out there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, wrong planet was one of the outside of Usenet and stuff was one of the very first like autistic oriented message boards. Um, and so, you know, there, that was, that was about it for the online stuff that hadn't really come into being mm-hmm. yet. And, you know, my, the, diagnostic doctor which you know i know this is totally recognizable to um parents parents today of having newly diagnosed children of just you get the diagnosis you get the label and it's you know i i know parents have felt the same similar things to what i felt of oh my gosh now i understand now i have the thing what do i do next and you know the whoever's diagnosing just kind of shrugs their shoulders and says i don't know but you're autistic. <laughs> I don't know where to tell you to go. I don't know what resources. I don't know any of that. Uh, so you expect to get the roadmap and there's no roadmap. Um, so I managed to find a um, an autism support group locally that was meeting up in my area. And that was a really exciting thing. Um, so I showed up to that. Um, and it turns out it was the second meeting of that support group. Um, nobody had shown up to the first meeting. And unsurprisingly, in 2004, um, the organizer uh, had never in a million years considered that an actual autistic adult would actually show up as part because autistic adults were supposed to be really rare. Um, <laughs> and so... You know, that was kind of my immediate draft in was, um, you know, quickly turning into just within like that first meeting, um, really shifting this to, okay, this is our support group. We're building it together. And one of the first things was like rewording the advertisement, advertising for the support group to make it uh, clear that it was open and welcoming to autistic adults as well, not just parents. And so very shortly when we did that, within fast forward about a year, and, um, you know, we are absolutely maxing out the library space with 30 and 40 uh, attendees every single meeting. Um, And about half of them are autistic adults. And all of us autistic adults are staring at each other going, we, like... This is only a town of a half million people, and there's 30 of us here, or, you know, 15 or 20 or whatever. Where are we all coming from? Because, <laughs> you know, autistic adults, we should be like in the one in 10,000. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, how in the world are there? Is it, is it the town? Is it that we have a lot of engineers here? And No, it's um, <laughs> because, you know, this was still very much the period of the rates of autism are increasing and we don't really know why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that things I realized very, very quickly is, 
uh, the value and power of being able to share um, your life experiences with, um, you know, parents and other people that are just at the start of that journey and need a lot of support. Um, so that whole that whole support group thing turned into a nonprofit. Um, you know, at its peak, um, there was a dozen different support groups uh, held every single month. There was, you know, there was support groups. There was, you know, child, teen, adult social groups, get-togethers, hangouts, a um, whole bunch of different, huge number of stuff. Uh, you know, parent night out stuff. Um, uh, you know, all told, there was a dozen. We had every single library because the town would get a nonprofit. They give you the space for free, but only once a month. So every single library we uh-huh. in the entire city, we had something done at. Um, nice. And that's, um, you know, all of my advocacy work kind of grew out of that. Um, and then seven, eight years ago um, is where I made the switch from, you know, advocacy doing something I did on the side for free into making the leap, taking a pay cut, um, and actually starting to work for the organization I currently work for. Um, Hmm. And yeah, uh, interestingly enough, my uh, former career before going into this is uh, I was a private investigator investigating mortgage fraud. Yeah, a little bit of a career shift. I imagine the uh, the mortgage fraud uh, skills have played well in your uh, role of uh, abuse investigator. Um, yeah, that's that is why that is a role I took on. Um, I'm not going to lie; it is a tremendously hard thing to do. But um, you know, I, I mentioned I'm an abuse survivor. Um, it is critically important to me that um, people actually get listened to. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most experience, the most common experience uh, when a disabled person faces abuse is nothing ever happens. Um, they report and, and nothing yep. changes. Uh, so with, you know, there is a whole bunch of other things that would be more fun to do, but that's one of the most important is to make sure that I am being diligent, taking their story, collecting all the evidence that's available, and um, you know, making sure to advocate that to you know other appropriate agencies that should know: adult protection, police, etc. I have a difficult relationship with the police myself, but um, you know, I have cultivated a good relationship where our local police are very, very responsive to disability abuse, um, and I, I'm, I'm I'm proud of that. That's great. Are you are you responding to abuse like? all around or just within your own agency or um any the my responsibility you know, and this is per state regulation 
is mm-hmm. anybody enrolled in services with us, uh, if they face any type of abuse, you know, not just from staff or contractors that work for our organization, but family, mm. parents, uh, people in the community. Mm, right um, fortunately, recently, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of online victimization, especially romance scams. Mm. Um, yes. So any, any piece of that, um, it's alleged, you know, any, any of the full spectrum of abuse that's alleged to have taken place against somebody enrolled in our services, um, which we are the only local provider of services because I live in a rural area. Um, not a whole lot of people live in the uh, Four Corners area of Colorado. Um, hmm. uh, we're, the, we're the only organization, so that effectively means that um, if it's abuse happening to an adult with intellectual disability, there's a good chance I'll be involved. Yeah. And are these generally... And then I got a few questions just about your story because it's really fascinating. I made a lot of notes, and I think it all plays into the main point of of what we're going to talk about around quality. Of well, remember that that's a fake story because I'm not real. But yes, <laughs> true, true. It's a it's true. a good yes, fake. Story. I know it's a it's a great fake story. I, I, I will I will I will I will be honest and tell everyone that uh, Jeff Jeff is actually a hired actor named. Uh, Named 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 Joseph Smith. Uh, he's from he's from down the street on on in British Columbia. And uh, no, of course yeah. not. <laughs> and, and I realize this is a joke that probably most listeners won't get. So so I'll, I'll drop the bit. But um, yeah, please no, please no, know no, that uh, um, there are prominent people in the ABA world that have actually mm-hmm. said, "I don't exist. I'm a liar. I'm you know a yeah." Wolf in sheep's clothing, snake in the grass, yeah. um, and no, I, I am here. My feelings about a whole bunch of things disability related are very much related to working in the field and my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely, but, and, and I'm not. And we're not going to. We're not going to name names here, but it's. Uh, it's. Uh, oh, can I we think name a lot names, of folks? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, I think a that. lot of folks, of course, I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, I have editing power too, but I think a lot of folks um, 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 listen to those voices as well. Uh, because these aren't, these aren't, these aren't just sort of, you know, newbie BCBAs that are making these comments. These are, you know, as, 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 as you well put prominent, you know, ABA practitioners and, you know, BCBADs and folks that are, that are essentially, you know, calling Jeff a liar and, and that he doesn't exist. And, 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 you know, those are, you know, I, I won't get into sort of, you know, debate lingo because I'm not much of a debater myself, but, you know, it, it really feels like this is a bit of a defense mechanism on their part um, because they, they'd rather just not have the conversation and they're trying to sort of just, you know, um, uh, disgrace his name. But the problem here is, is that a lot of folks, those folks, we, there's a lot of talk about, you know, um, uh, supervision and 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 uh, and how we sort of supervise and train our upcoming bcbas and whatnot and these folks are involved in a lot of training a lot of supervision and a lot of folks look up to the folks that are slandering jeff and um and uh and so i think it's really important that you know the folks listening well you've already heard jeff's story uh, about how he got into the field you know his perspective is real and um and he's got a really interesting perspective that 
you know, takes into account a lot of things, you know, that our field doesn't take into account. So I think, I think, I think it's great that, that we're, we're uh, sharing these pieces. I, I forget, I think my question was going to be um, um, around, around abuse um, in terms of, uh, yeah, so the the reporting tends to be then sort of self-reporting. Is that sort of how it goes, or like how does it work with folks that? Because a lot, I think what we I think a couple of things we know to sort of stand back. And I'm actually trying to get someone on the podcast that does a lot of research in this area. But um, you know, abuse is super prevalent in, in for folks with disabilities. I mean, we know that yeah. most folks with disabilities will either suffer some form of traumatic event or some form of abuse you know, sort of sometime in their life. And it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, the, the more sort of, you know, graphic televised, you know, you know, televised versions of, uh, of, of, of abuse. There's a lot of different levels of abuse out there. Uh, but, um, but what, but what we also know, I think what we also talk a lot about is, is how there's, a, there's a lot of folks. And, and this is why I think why this really plays into your advocacy role. There's a lot of folks out there that can't self-report. Um, you know, or don't have the communication available to self-report. People don't understand their communication well enough for them yeah. to self-report. How they um, communicate um, is do, not do you being deal with listened that? to well yeah. enough to self-report. Yeah. So do, do you work in that area as well? And how does that go? Are you looking for a way to recognize World Autism Month in a meaningful, actionable way? Foundations for Divergent Minds is a nonprofit organization rooted in the belief that all neurodivergent people should be able to thrive in the communities they live, work, and play. We are offering courses to professionals to provide a space to explore neurodiversity through a different lens while staying true to your field. Every course fee directly supports our programs tackling healthcare gaps for autistics of color, designing local community programs, and promoting safety for autistic people. We recognize that the fear of discomfort can be a big deterrent for many people, but that also discomfort is the place where growth comes from. So we created several courses aimed at offering this space to different fields of practice. One for teachers, educators, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists and counselors, and the other for behavior analysts. If you're unsure what steps to take to build a neurodiversity aligned practice, these courses are a great resource and co-instructed by professionals in your field of practice. For the Behavior Analyst course, go to FDM, that's F as in Frank, D as in Donald, M as in Mary, dot training forward slash response. Everyone else can go to FDM dot training forward slash implement. And now for a limited time, you can use the discount code BEHAVIORSPEAKS, all caps, to receive a 10% discount. Hope to see you there. 
you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words and enter them at cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop to purchase your CEUs. The first secret word is support. Um, yeah, I do. Um, I have uh, I, I have a lot of experience um, interviewing people with communication differences. Um, mm. and, 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 you know, in answer to your question, um, abuse investigations trip off with any allegation from any source. We're going to do some looking into it. Mm. it. It sounds like there's a possibility that, um, somebody is saying something that if, if reasonably accurate would trip abuse, we're always doing an investigation, um, and organizational policy is we investigate a whole bunch of stuff that is not on its face abusive, but carries the potential for abuse. Um, a key one of okay, those cool. is we fully investigate every single use of restraint. Um, mm, so interesting. Okay. We know, and a lot of you that have worked um, hmm. in this field know that use of restraint can be a way to legally legally get physical with somebody and you mm -hmm. code you you know you you code your physical violence as uh, required as a use of restraint and that is mm -hmm. how some people choose to carry out acts of abuse that um, they get a pass on so um, mm -hmm. we look mm -hmm. into every situation take interviews um, and you know, put together a report of what we can tell actually happened there. And, and most of the time, what happened was by the book in a reasonable last resort of tried everything mm -hmm. else in the mm -hmm. situation. Um, there was a imminent risk of somebody being seriously hurt or killed. And so in, in most cases, that's the case. But there, but that is also the most reliable way that, um, more of cases I've worked have turned into criminal convictions from supposed restraint than anything else. Um, so, but I got off topic. Uh, that's, um, yeah. You know, the question... No, no, I think you're right on topic. You're right on topic. Keep going. Yeah. This is great. Um, but the question was really focused on how, um, how do you get that information from, um, you know, people with communication differences? Um, yeah. And I would say key to that is, and, and one of the reasons I think um, doing abuse investigations with, I think the state is onto something with having somebody from the organization be involved in that, because we're going to know that person way, way, way better than an adult protection worker um, or certainly police. Um, mm -hmm. They know us. Uh, so we have a we have a level of trust there, um, and we're much more knowledgeable about the person's modes of communication and uh, how best to kind of approach uh, in in order to get um, in order to get good information. Um, mm -hmm. So you know that um, I've I've done things like. Um, you know, there was one time that there was a sexual assault allegation um, 
that somebody was making with uh, they were they were demonstrating and pantomiming uh, what very much seemed to be consistent with saying I was assaulted uh, through gestures, mm, um, but wow. very limited language um, and just it, it it so could not get like just from talking could not get other details like who what when where um and so you know i approached that interview with a whole bunch of pictures um you know every single person on our staff that had had contact with that person over the previous month um a whole bunch of similar looking pictures pulled off the internet um pictures of myself pictures of um, just, just thrown in the mix of, and, you know, got, got this woman talking about this is the experience. And then, so, you know, all right, I'm going to show you some pictures. Tell me who, um, and that, that was productive. Um, that allowed me to very narrow down and understand better what I was looking at and what, what this person was reporting happening. I did the same with uh, places, um, you know, important if we we're trying to figure out what happened, that we have a better understanding of where it happened um, through different places, pictures of places that the person visited uh, was able to nail down and get a very solid, yes, you, this is it, this is it, um, rec center pool. And wow. so um, it's, it's very individual. Um, and it is, you know, really based on knowledge of the person and trust. Um, you know, you got to approach every interview and every situation we were gathering that um, with with a lot of, lot of knowledge of who the person is and and how they talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't have that, yeah, you're just not no. going to get the information. Yeah. No, that's really, really cool. Not the incident, of course, but kind of how you go about it. Um, and not surprised to hear Rec Center Pool, because certainly the the swimming pools are, are a common place for a lot of our folks to kind of end up going to a lot of the time. You know, we can certainly dive into sort of lack of activity choices, but uh, that tends to be, you know, a, a, a big source of exercise for a lot of folks we serve. And, yeah. uh, and also a place a place where... They're regularly, you know, stripping off their clothes and, and uh, you know, in, in locker rooms with who knows who's around. And, you know, the opportunities for abuse are endless, uh, you know, certainly in, in, in those sorts of contexts. So not surprised at all that, that that's occurring. Um, you know, I, I also I, I love that you you folk investigate every incident, incident of restraint. You know, I think this this is a really key piece that I don't think. And, and, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear from folks um, sort of going forward. But I don't think many agencies do this. I've, I've worked for several agencies where restraint was, you know, you know used and, and uh, you know, regularly. And certainly, you know, unless, you know, an individual, you know, ended up in hospital or, or stopped breathing, um, you know, per se, which are things that we know can, can happen through restraint. Prone um, restraints you know, kill. No. Exactly. There was no kind of uh, investigation. I think we had one individual. I remember one individual who had a, had a person in a prone restraint, 
and someone had the wherewithal, maybe they took their training recently, to remember that you're not supposed to ever hold the legs down when someone is in a prone restraint. Now, I know we don't do prone restraints at all anymore, but back yeah. in the day when we did, this was sort of the advance. Don't hold the legs down because that stops breathing. Well, and this individual was view, was observed doing that and got fired. But it's very rare. Yeah. you know. I don't know if things are different in Canada, Ben, but um, unfortunately mm. in the United States, um, there is an enormous amount of evidence that prone restraints are straight up dangerous. Um, yep. And there is a lot of states and localities that have banned them, but it's not universal. And there are still uh, programs um, that that you know exist to basically teach uh, restraint uh, to educate staff on how to use restraint that still include prone restraints. Mm -hmm. ABA backed, mm -hmm. by the way. Um, ABA affiliations, mm -hmm. um, you know. So it's it is still a huge problem and it's really frustrating to um, not be able to get over the finish line of agreement that we should not be prone restraining people when, uh, you know, over the last generation, it has killed hundreds of people to say nothing. This is just in disability settings to say nothing of how many people have mm -hmm. died in police prone restraints. We have oh, yeah. a ton of evidence about this and yet it's still a thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just and again going back to kind of the the investigation piece. Is is this something that sort of your folks came up with? Have you heard of other agencies doing that sort of thing, the investigation of restraints? Because I've never heard about that till now, and I think it's a brilliant thing that should be in place everywhere. Um. Yeah, that was. I mean, I like our organization. Um. I I have picketed <laughs> outside the front of organizations that serve the exact same role in different parts of the state. I, I was really shocked to find mm -hmm. one that there was a value alignment with that I could actually consider stepping in the door and, um, mm -hmm. you know, getting getting a seat at the table. Um, and I'm really glad I did. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, one of those attractive things was I saw from the outset that they took restraint very seriously. They had built a culture around um, around really making sure this was absolutely used as the last result. Um, and, and it was really something I was able to build off on of. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the key, one of the key things I was able to bring as I got took over more and more of the investigative role was um, building, building trust with staff that um, they were going to be treated fairly in these investigations. That mm -hmm. you know, if you if you did your job, if you did it by the book, it's there's none of this is ever going to reflect poorly on you. Um, but if you didn't, you're going to be held accountable. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's not a witch hunt. I'm not out to get anybody. I understand that my my role only has. It, it, the output of my work, my conclusions only have value if I'm doing it objectively and fairly. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that changed a little bit more in our culture was when I first uh, started doing this, um, there was a bit of a circle of wag circle the wagons effect with um, a lot of the, you know, just line level staff. Um, 
Mm. There is, you know, a certain perception um, that, uh, in some cases, I think was um, that 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 there was fair reasons for that perception that uh, abuse investigations were used as a convenient way to fire people. Um, mm. And so we're not objective. And, you know, if somebody had it in for you, then, you know, there'd be an abuse investigation that would really slant things in the direction of just getting rid of you. Mm. The second secret word is restraint. Mm. Which I understand the perception most of the and, and there were a few cases that I was looking at in our archives that did kind of raise questions like that for me. But in, but most of the time, um, it was done very, very well. And so it was just making sure that all the time it was done well and objectively. And because um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it only takes the one time where... Um, you start getting an axe to grind where that's going to really erode the trust of everything you do. Absolutely. A couple of other things you mentioned just in your sort of intro that that kind of stood out for me um, that I was just curious about. Um, you mentioned when you when you when you went to that first uh, support group that it was mostly parents, and I assume these were parents of kids that were autistic. Is yeah. That right. Yeah. And so, and in so what the context like? of 2004, like? very young. Yeah, and so what was that interaction like for the parents to, to actually see some adults, autistic adults, sort of in the room and to, to be able to sort of engage with them? What was that? What was that like for them? What was it like for you? Um, uh, I like the. It, it was a pretty surreal experience because, yeah. um, you know, it was, it was all of a sudden. Uh, for one of the first times in my life, um, it, it's certainly one of the one of the positive feedback things that do come from advocacy work is for the first time in my life, I felt like the most important person on the face of the earth because hmm. that that is they for for the parents that suddenly had access to somebody that they could actually ask questions to and get real world responses to of my kid is experiencing this and I don't understand enough about what it is to support them. Like, can you, do you have any ideas of what's going on here? And they'll say, well, yeah, <laughs> that sounds exactly like this. I experienced this, mm -hmm. this, and this. Does that sound like what's going on? And a lot of times the answer was, oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, so mm -hmm. it was, um, you know, I like those those parents. A lot of those parents became just the kind of anchor of of that group. But for me personally, coming off a mental health crisis, um, it was mm -hmm. one of the the first things that really demonstrated to me that my life tra trajectory is going in a different direction because all of the sudden. People are actually caring about my experience and caring about what I have to say. Um, and, you know, that is frankly, uh, and, and accepting me, um, yeah. you know, accepting yeah. me for, 
as who I was, accepting my autistic identity. Up until that point, all advice I'd gotten on how to, um, you know, how to, quote, handle my disability was always, 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 always pretend to be normal. Now, it was never, well, very rarely explicitly said just pretend, but all of the advice was do this the way a normal person was, because my brain is not wired the way a neurotypical person is. That is, act mm-hmm. act and do this to your best act of what a how a neurotypical, stereotypical neurotypical mm-hmm. person would handle this. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I mean, there's just some really cool sort of concepts. I mean, this is 2004, 2005, and I'm I'm thinking, you know, I, and I don't know. Maybe more. Maybe there's other groups that do this, but I think the idea of having autistic adults attend, being part of parents to work groups, I think, is just genius. You know, and 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 I think it would be because I think you know, again, I I can't speak to speak for them. I don't attend those groups. I'm not a. I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, a parent of an autistic child, let alone a parent at all. Um, um, you know, so I'm certainly not going to try to make assumptions on kind of perspectives and what they're talking about. But I, you know, for your only source of information to either be professionals or other parents' experiences with their young children, uh, and to not have that perspective of what it could look like 20 years from now, um, um, you know, I think yeah, yeah that just was that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, we. We had definitely recognized that we had somehow blundered into catching lightning in a bottle. Um, <laughs> that we we weren't we weren't going off of any model or anything else. It was just kind of by accident that it fit yeah. together, and it yeah. was really really powerful. Um, and you know, um, my organization um, it it looks different, um, especially in the age of COVID, where the support group is by Zoom. Um, also makes sense for our very large, geographically spread out area um, of folks that we're interacting with and the logistics of, mm-hmm. are you going to drive two hours each way to come to a support group meeting? Probably not. Um, mm-hmm. If you're if you're an adult with an IDD, um, most of which probably means that either you don't drive or are less comfortable or have less resources pay five dollar gallon mm-hmm. gas etc 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 transportation is a huge barrier um so mm-hmm. so we're doing it by zoom um and we've been doing it for about the last six months and yeah it's feeling like 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 lightning in a bottle again um mm-hmm. unfortunately um i think support groups are uh less prevalent and i think there's um, I, I, I am, and I blame the internet. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of polarization. Um, that is, I believe, is largely driven by the internet. Yeah, a hundred percent. So uh, that is totally the case. Yeah, these days. Unfortunately, there's less collaboration um, between parents of autistic folks and autistic folks for. A lot of reasons, and a lot of them are not good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can, I can see that as well for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. The other interesting point you made. I don't know if, if, if I still have kind of the same thought now, but um, was was just around sort of, you know, 
your initial comment about sort of folks, you know, either, you know, maybe, you know, not, but not believing, you know, you're autistic or not believing you're real, but not <laughs> believing that you, you know, that you have a, that you have a, have a perspective on this, on these sorts of things. Um, uh, because you were diagnosed because be, being diagnosed as an adult. And I see that happening a lot more. I think there's a lot of folks out there, you know, particularly BCBAs, um, you know, that are now speaking up, um, uh, because they've been diagnosed as adults. And so that, you know, you know, it'd be like myself getting a diagnosis a couple of weeks ago, and now I'm going to, you know, speak for autistic folk or whatever. Well, well um, Ben, even if that, that happened, perspective. even if you got that diagnosis last week, you would have still mm-hmm. lived your entire life. If we're talking a developmental disability, your entire life was still assuming the diagnosis is accurate and no reason not to yeah. assume that your entire life has still been of that person. Maybe you have yes. a different perspective and different positives, negatives, challenges from not having an accurate mm-hmm. diagnosis. So, you know, they're, there can certainly be differences in life experience there, but it's, mm-hmm. but how your brain has processed everything. That's, that hasn't changed. Um, how yeah. autism affects who you are, your identity, that hasn't changed. You're just better understanding of it. Yeah. So I, yeah. no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was going to say like one, one may be diagnosed at 40, but, that the, the sort of because I think you you touched on sort of you know access to diagnosis yeah. and I think you know and this this is a whole other sort of you know can of worms but but an important one in that you know we talk about you know and and there's there's a lot of talk about self diagnosis yeah. which you know obviously has its own sorts of uh, of pieces there um, but. You know, there's a lot of folks, you know, and particularly folks that come from sort of, you know, minority backgrounds and whatnot, um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and for whatever or resource, you know, deficient backgrounds or whatever, you know, that just don't have access to diagnosis, yeah. um, you know, ever. Um, well, and, let's and, be real you know, about it's, it. Maybe it's only. T- um, yeah. Cis white dudes <clears throat> like myself are the ones that have access to a diagnosis, especially in cases exactly. like mine where it was not on my radar at all. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't, hadn't encountered it before and wasn't bringing it to, um, you know, whoever would diagnose, in my case, it was a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it, it, you know, I, I got blindsided with it and that is simply just not an experience. I think, you know, it, it's, if that's going to happen to anybody, it's going to happen to the cis white dude. Um, right. The diagnostic criteria is tremendously poor at uh, picking up women and other marginalized groups because of racism, because of resources, um, have have even more of an issue. You know, black folks are much, much more likely by research to instead be diagnosed with some uh, personality disorder. Um, stuff yes. like borderline, stuff like oppositional defiant <clears throat> disorder, um, yep. where yep. it is, you know, it's 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 it looks pretty racist, um, and so so yeah, that is that is a key barrier, and I know there's plenty of people that are 
out there that are really uncomfortable with the idea of um, that somebody who does not have a formal diagnosis of taking of taking and, and listening to that perspective. Uh, one thing one thing I want to point out is research looking into self-diagnosis uh, has found that 75% of people um, that uh, believed had, you know, basically self-diagnosed as autistic, 75% when they got to the point where they could have access to a formal diagnosis, had that diagnosis confirmed. So mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of people out there that um, are self-diagnosed autistic are correct. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, and your your point about the the the, the, uh, the you know the black folk and, the, and the, how racism plays in and, and and sort of the misdiagnosis of other things is 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 really key. This is something we're seeing a lot here in Canada. You probably see it in the states as well um, with our with our indigenous population. Yes. So you know our indigenous our, our indigenous folk are so much more likely to be diagnosed with FASD than autism mm. and for fetal alcohol yeah. spectrum disorder because the assumption is that every indigenous parent was drinking um, and is an alcoholic and that whole sort of line of thinking um, and therefore, you know, th- there's no way this is autism. This has to be FASD because you're indigenous. Which is, you know, just uh, just... And so the I was I had a guy a fellow on Grant Bruno, um, he's a parent of a of a autistic child and an indigenous fella in Alberta, and he's doing some research into you know indigenous uh, the, the perceptions of autism in indigenous communities right. and whatnot. And he was just he he was really outlining how the, this this uh, you know this it, it kind of he describes it as an indigenous deficit discourse. Um, um, that essentially, you know, uh, the the assumption is always FASD, um, and where and, and 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 it's obviously led to a whole systemic problem of foster care and the whole nine yards and people getting pulled out of their homes, you know, when alcohol may, maybe didn't even play a role, you know, in in any way in 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 the, in the family dynamic, um, and so yeah, the, 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 there's varying versions of, of how this all works. The reason I'm asking all these questions and because I know we could sort of digress into into and tangent into 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 you know a diagnosis sort of you know podcast is is it gets back to you know assumptions around um you know supports for adults yeah. you know particularly for for ABA providers you know why didn't so and so get a diagnosis why didn't he have early intervention because if he had early intervention he'd be way different now i've had so many ABA practitioners come up to me when i used to manage a group home mm-hmm. kind of before i became BCBA and um and uh and i had so many folks coming up to me that were in the ABA field as i was starting to learn about it and developing an interest in maybe going there um basically telling me how sorry they felt for all the guys in 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 the home that i manage because they didn't get aba it's too bad why didn't they get aba well they didn't get aba because there was there was no number one there whether they got aba or not and would that have solved their problem that's a whole other conversation but also the the access to diagnosis just wasn't available. I mean, you look at yeah. yourself, you know, in the, in the 80s, if folks look at their history of sort of autism, you know, we talk about sort of, you know, 
we, we a lot of this, and again, you know, and, and I don't mean to sort of go back into this sort of ABA abuse conversation, but but we, the, the accusation from some of these sort of prominent folks is that well, you never had ABA, yeah, because I never got a diagnosis. Um, but you know what I did have? I, I had I had a lot of services that were probably that were under the guise of ABA, because ABA in the eighties was a much different thing. And I, and I don't mean that it, it's better now or worse now. It was just different. Like it was just it, 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 there wasn't. It was this is pre Lovast. Like you're 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 the time when you got your childhood schizophrenia diagnosis and your sensory integration disorder diagnosis. Early intervention wasn't even a, a yeah. thing that existed. But there's this assumption by by younger practitioners, I think now that um, you know all adults with autism, or all autistic adults should have had you know kind of these services and so on and so forth. And so. You know, uh, it, it just there's just a lot of assumptions and yes. and and, uh, and 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 biases in in place here for adults in service. The third secret word is person. Yeah, and I and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. Um, sorry for people that know me, because you know, obviously, this is part of my uh, ABA brand. Um, but you know, I it, it, I do want to point out the idea that um autist like all autistic people as a blanket statement um if they had aba as a child would be better off in adulthood is mm-hmm. you know we're all familiar with lovas's 9 of 19 study and i would challenge you mm-hmm. that pretty like the entire body of outcomes post that of this huge aba industry that has sprung up in the aftermath of that is a replication failure of the nine of 19 study. Mm. Um, like the, mm. like, uh, you know, as one example, I, you know, point out to TRICARE data. Um, TRICARE is a major insurer of the United States is tied to the United States military. Mm. Uh, and it's one of the, they, they make their, they make information public, unlike a lot of other insurers. Um, and I and I reference the Tricare data because um, what they are measuring as success with autistic people is very, very similar to what Lovas was saying um, in, a, in a vision mm. for what a good outcome um, was for an autistic person, which you know we all know included mm. this. You know, horrendous statement, indistinguishable from one's peers. Um, so, sure. So, you know, there's the the data does not support that this universal truth that you know universally held almost in ABA that everybody autistic mm-hmm. people would be better off blanket from receiving ABA as a young child. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Take take a look at what what actual outcomes are. They do not support that. That is not saying on an individual le- level that um, individual people do not have a benefit. Um, I but but I also want to point out that um, I think there's solid evidence to support an argument which I am making that what is more what is more important than any therapy philosophy or or science or application you know whatever whatever drives the who what where and why of that therapy what is most important is that person's individual connection with whoever 
is teaching whoever the therapist is and whether or not they heard the lesson. Um, and that's something not easily mm -hmm. captured in data. So a lot of times beyond the very superficial um, pairing doesn't, doesn't really account for. Um, you can think back mm -hmm. to this in your own mm -hmm. life. Um, who's your favorite teacher? Right. Um, what, who immediately comes to mind is probably the person you had a really close relationship with rather than, mm -hmm. you know, who may have objectively taught you this. Or who had that, certainly not who had the best method. You don't, you know, you probably aren't, couldn't even name the method of who your best teacher mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. But you know who the best teacher was. And you know why you did that. So, 